Today, we are going to continue in our theme of God's mercy and the devil's grace. In our last message, we really started to turn the focus. We really put the emphasis on the latter part of this title, on the devil's grace portion, what that, uh, what that means, what that might look like. Uh, we even got into a little bit of history, if you will. We're going to continue to dig into this ugly little topic further, and I want to do this I want to do this because of how prevalent this message is today among us. The devil's grace message is prevalent. It is being peddled at an all-time high. I can tell you that. And what's frightening to me is the church is receiving this message with open arms. Where the enemy has come in, he is peddling a message of death, but he has cloaked it ever so carefully with the terms of God's mercy of God's grace, his love, his compassion. But you go to the inner core of what's really being taught and you find out it's producing death. And so we're going to bring some further clarity to this issue. And really what I'm seeking to do is I want to give you the tools necessary to be able to identify, to distinguish the difference between God's mercy and the devil's grace. Because I can tell you to the untrained eye, to an untrained eye, to someone that is not in an intimate relationship With the Ruach HaKodesh, with the Holy Spirit, it is not flowing through them. They cannot make the distinction. The devil's mercy looks exactly like God's mercy. The devil's grace is God's grace. And they don't even know that. So we're going to dig into this. And um, this is pretty intense stuff. So let's go to 2 Corinthians Chapter 11, verse 4, Paul has this to say, If he who comes preaches another Yeshua whom, you, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. I want to begin by saying Paul was very careful in constructing this passage. He was very intentional. And what you see is the construct is such that he is taking you from A to Z through the faith. Everything that the apostles of Yeshua, the witnesses that witnessed his resurrection, that went out proclaiming him and the truth of who he is, every aspect of that, of what they delivered, he covers If He goes, if you deviate at all, if you accept a different Yeshua, if you accept a different spirit, if you accept a different message, any part of the faith is deviated from, you may well put up with it. Do you know what that means? That means you will reap what you sow. That's what it means. You will reap what you sow. You will pay for it. He sends out this warning, dropping down to verse 13. We read this. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into what? Apostles of Mashiach. They are not coming to you as apostles of Mithra or Baal or Nehushtan, or Buddha, they're coming in the name of Jesus Yeshua. This is how they come. You start to feel the weight and gravity of where this is going? He goes on in verse 14. This is what we read. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into, uh, what? Ministers of darkness? Ministers of righteousness. Think about that. They're coming proclaiming Yeshua as Lord and Savior. They come to you proclaiming hope. They're bringing a message of salvation, a message of righteousness. And yet Paul says whose end will be according to their works. These are men who allure 
who seduce believers in Yeshua to accept things that are contrary to this book, to the word of God. And to top it all off, and this is the worst part of all of this, when these people go out and do it, they're adored. They are loved. Look at what Yeshua says in in Luke chapter 6. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Yeshua's given a little history lesson of the faith of Israel, of going, and what, 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 how did they respond to false prophets? They loved them. They revered them. They adored them. They lifted them up. They were supported. And nay, I say they were even protected within the body. Think about this. Understand, when you have these kinds of people, okay, going forth, purporting, literally these kinds of emotions, in other words, placating, alluring you, based upon your emotions, it's a setup. It's a setup. You're being set up to be destroyed. That's what it is. Know this. If these false teachers or false prophets, if they are not identified quickly, there will be nothing left. There will be nothing left in a community. If these guys are allowed to do what they do best, there will be nothing but a massacre. You think about what Paul says in in Acts chapter 20. Savage wolves will come in and they will not spare the flock. They will not do it. They will not show mercy. Total destruction. How many times have we been warned about these kinds of men in scripture? The Bible is riddled with these warnings. Think about Yeshua's ministry. What does Yeshua say in Matthew 24 verse 11? Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, not some. Many will rise up and jumping ahead. You want to see how bad it is? False Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Put that into context. Yeshua is telling you the deception is so great that even those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, who bear the Holy Spirit inside of them, if it were possible, even they would be deceived. That is a level of deception. I have, I have scoured this book from Genesis to Revelation, and I yet to find someone articulate it with more intensity than Yeshua of how great the deception really is. If it were possible, even the elect would be taken. Just wrap your mind around that. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. But there were also false prophets among the people, <clears throat> even as there will also be what? False teachers among you. This is not talking about the world. We're not looking for people in the world. We're looking inside the ecclesia. We're looking inside the assembly, the kahal. This is where we're looking. And Peter says, beware. False teachers are going to be among you. What are they going to do? What's the very next thing that he says? They will secretly bring in destructive heresies. I want you to think about that for a second. So we have false prophets within the church, but what do they do? They secretly, covertly, this is not open. Covertly, they weave in a tapestry of false doctrine, heretical ideologies. And here's the kicker, nobody's recognizing it. 
Nobody has seen it. This is the level of deception. And then he goes on, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now, the context of what Peter is, and I always take the opportunity to stop right here so you understand Peter's context of what he just said, is the exact same context of what Paul speaks to Titus in chapter 1. Where he said, there will be men who profess to know God. They declare him. They're declaring salvation and hope to the world. They profess to know him, but in works, they are abominable, disobedient to who? To God and disqualified for every good work. So they deny him. They end up denying the same context of what we just read here. And then as we continue in verse 2, listen to this. And many will follow their destructive ways. Again, same thing Yeshua tells us. It's not some, but many will follow the destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, I want to point out something here. And this is something that is very important. These terms that we see being used over and over again in Scripture, like false prophet or false teacher, whatever the case may be, we see these over and over again. You need to understand These are titles that are given when we read them in a state of conclusion. Do you understand? In a state of conclusion. In other words, what I'm telling you is that when you're actively involved in experiencing this, guess what? The false prophets don't come to you with name badges. They don't say, oh, thank you for inviting me to your community. I'm a false prophet. Let me invite you to my, uh, let me introduce you to my friend. He's a false teacher. Where's your prayer room? This is not how they present themselves. You know, with our preconceived notions, we can really deceive ourselves and we set up preconceived notions on how they really look. Well, a guy comes in, he's got tattoos up in his arm. False prophet, he's at the back. You see all the tattoos? It's obvious. He's got piercings all over him. If someone comes in with a Megadeth t-shirt, I knew it. False prophet, here they come. This is, we can see them. Someone comes in with a pitchfork and horns. This is what we're thinking. This is where we go. Let me tell you something. The men that the Bible, that Yeshua, that Peter, that Paul are talking about, these are men that go out with titles that say, we are servants of the Most High. We are disciples of Yeshua. We follow the King of the Jews. That's who we are. That's what we profess. These are the titles that these men carry. They carry titles like man of God. They're seen in the midst as, oh, he's a real man of God. He's a prophet of God. This is what they're seeing. So what's my point? I have a point here. My point is, is false prophets are not easy to spot. They don't come with name tags. They don't come proclaiming themselves as false prophets or false teachers. What they come with is typically a boatload of support. A boatload of character that is perceived as being righteous. That's how these men come to us. And that's when things get really scary. Because that's a game changer. And that's where you realize, man, I need to do an audit on my salvation. I need to test myself to know whether I am in the faith. I've allowed people to speak into my life a lot of things. I've accepted a lot of things. But have we been Berean? Do we go to make sure the things that are spoken to us, are they so? Are these things true? It's a frightening thought just to think that we could have two prolific men in this community or any other community. 
And both are revered, highly esteemed as men of God. Both people have seen that the Lord has done marvelous things through these two men, only to find out that one is a heretic and the other is authentic. That, to me, is a scary thought. Well, I'm going to tell you something. This is the reality. This is a reality that we're living in today. And this is why the Bible spends so much time dealing with this issue. And it does an amazing job. It does an amazing job at warning us if we're just willing to pay attention. And keep in mind, let me, let me add this. You do not have the capability in and of yourself to identify the truth from the fiction. That who's truly speaking from the Lord and that who's an imposter. You do not have that ability. That ability only comes through the Holy Spirit. That ability comes through the word of God. Separate yourself from Yeshua. Separate yourself from this. And I promise you, you are a prime candidate for deception. Let me put this into context for you. I want to take you to a story. And it's just amazing how the Lord spends so much time. We think New Testament and false prophets and false teachers because Yeshua spends so much time. Paul does. Peter does. Talking about these things. Even Yaakov, James, and his short epistle. The Tanakh is filled with information and wondrous wisdom on you know, protecting ourselves from the imposters. And it does through various ways, through stories. Amazing. And so I want to share this story with you in 1 Kings. And this is, a, this is actually a tale of two prophets. And let me set the stage here. Both of these men that we're going to look at are both prophets of God. All right? So going to 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 1, this is what we read. And behold, the man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Now, before we go further, there's, there's something that I need to help you with, because otherwise it could be confusing. Neither of these two prophets mentioned in 1 Kings 13 have a name. They bear titles. The first prophet that we're reading about here is called the man of God, and he's called the man of God throughout the story. The next prophet we're going to read about very shortly, he is called the old prophet or old prophet from Bethel or Beit El. Okay, so here we are introduced to the first prophet. He is specifically his title is his man of God. Then we go to verse two, and this is what we read. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, the child, uh, Yoshiahu, or Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. I want to give you a little backdrop. It's going to help you appreciate the story. Solomon received a kingdom. It was the kingdom in its entirety. But when he sinned, the Lord stripped him of his kingdom. He reserved a portion of Judah, but he gave 10 pieces, or if you will, 10 tribes to one of his highly decorated servants, the one who was over all the house of this labor force for Yosef, okay? And his name is Jeroboam. Jeroboam received what we now call the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom remained under Solomon or his son's Rehoboam uh, authority. And this is very important. Jeroboam, he did something. He built two altars. And let me show you a map. Here's a map. On this map, you'll notice I have Bethel. This is where our story takes place. 
you'll notice it's literally on the border. It is on the border of, of um, Judah and Israel. And that's not a coincidence that Jeroboam decided to build an altar here. Because what he, what he was telling Israel, the king, his kingdom, and the people of his kingdom, he was telling them, it's too far for you to go to Jerusalem, even though it's just, just south of it. So he sets up a temple before then. According to Torah, we cannot sacrifice anywhere but in Jerusalem. But Jeroboam sets up this temple, and this is the primary temple. He sets up a second one in Dan. But the primary temple is Bethel. That's where the majority of Israel is going to sacrifice. And so it's a very, very wicked thing that Jeroboam did. The people were to go up to Yerushalayim, but he did not want this, if you will, cross-contamination of Israel with Judah. He recognized, obviously, there are two separate kingdoms. And this is about insulating, protecting his kingdom. So this is a little backdrop as to why the Lord has sent this man of God, this prophet, sent him to Bethel, where this altar, which is vile, and they're making sacrifice to it, to speak against it. And now we go on to verse 3, and this is what we read. And he, meaning the man of God, gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. In verse 4, So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar of Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, arrest him. Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. Now think about that. The anointing is so heavy Upon this man of God, Jeroboam merely stretches out his hand and he gives a command that he needs to be arrested. The wrath of God comes upon him, shrivels up his hand. You think about the fear that this guy experienced. Well, we actually see that as we continue in verse 5. The altar also was split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. No question, this guy's a true prophet. Continuing on in verse 6. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. Moving on to verse 8. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Very important, critical. We learned that God gave him three commandments in regard to being in Bethel. Number one, he's not to eat there. Number two, he's not to drink there. And number three, the way he came in from Judah into Bethel, he cannot go that path. He's got to find a different way to leave Bethel. Very straightforward. These are the commandments of the Lord upon the prophet of the living God. Okay? Now we continue in verse 11. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel. Okay, so here we have this introduction of the old prophet, the second prophet. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. 
They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. So understand this because it's critical to the story. This old prophet had sons. They were in Bethel watching all of this unfold at the altar that Jeroboam uh, built. They saw his hand withered, but more importantly, more importantly, they heard the words of the man of God that he spoke to King Jeroboam. Those words that I am not allowed to eat in Bethel. I'm not allowed to drink and I have to go out a different way. And the sons of the old prophet They come and tell him everything. So this is critical. The old prophet, he knows everything. He's privy to the whole scenario that went down. Moving on to verse 12. And this is what we read. And their father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Yehuda. Then he said to the son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it. Moving on to verse 14. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said, come home with me and eat bread. Now. First problem is this. Where does the old prophet live? He lives in Bethel. The very place that God had commanded the man of God forbade him to go and eat in or drink in. And what does this old prophet do? He invites him to come home with him and eat with him. Well, let's take take this a step further. What does the old prophet know? The prophet knows what God had commanded him. And yet he's asking him to do this. Try to wrap your mind around what's actually happening here. Moving on to verse 16. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. So when this old prophet comes, To try to deter him from the commandments of God. How does the man of God respond? Beautifully. Absolutely incredible. He holds fast. He says, no, 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 no. This is what the Lord has commanded me. I cannot do that. Unfortunately, and pay very close attention. Because this is how the adversary works in general. The adversary does not give up on you. Just because you resisted temptation one time, do not think it's not going to come back or to manifest in a different form, because it will. And as we continue on in the story, we're actually going to see, guess what? The old prophet, even though the man of God told him no, he doesn't give up. He actually comes back and listen to what he says. This is what he says. And he said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. I want you to understand something. I just want to stop here. He tells him no, first of all. What's the old prophet do? He ups the ante. He, changed, he wants to change this man's perspective. Give him real perspective. Whoa, 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 whoa. Man of God, listen to me. I too am a prophet exactly like you are. And if you think this didn't resonate with the man of God, you'd be sorely mistaken. This is something that you take very, very seriously. When there are authentic men of God moving about, when they speak, you listen. This is the reality. When Samuel came coming into town in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, and the elders come trembling in fear, 
because Samuel had come. And they say, do you, do you speak peaceably to us? Because they're scared to death of what's going to come out of his mouth. You need to understand this intensity. The context is such that this old prophet says, I am a prophet just as you. He now has the ear of the man of God. And then he goes on to say, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Well, that makes sense because he's a prophet. The Lord speaks to prophets. Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. And he obviously was lying to him. He was lying to him. But this is what the old prophet tells him. Now I ask a second time, how does the man of God respond? This time, not so well. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. In other words, the word of the Lord is coming to the old prophet. It's what he is. He is a prophet. Moving on to verse 21. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Yehuda, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back ate bread, and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, eat no bread, drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. What in the world just happened? Could you imagine being the man of God and sitting there? How many of you would say, well, wait a second, foul. You're a prophet. You told me the Lord said to you, I'm supposed to come back here. That makes sense. And now you're going to prophesy against me? And tell me that my, my corpse isn't going to come to the tomb of my fathers? As you continue to read the story, that's exactly what happens. His corpse does not come to the tomb of his fathers. Because on the way, a lion meets him and literally destroys him. Kills him. And it was a peculiar event. If you had any question or not whether this was the word of the Lord... And that this old prophet truly spoke by the word of the Lord. It was the most peculiar thing ever. Because when they found the man, they found him in between a lion and a donkey. His donkey that he was riding. No harm came to the donkey. The lion just killed the man and the lion's just sitting there. So he sits between a lion and a donkey. And when the old prophet catches wind of this, he says that is because the man of God did not obey the commandments of the Lord. This is what has happened. Now I say to you, you want to talk about deception. Don't think that you are beyond it. Don't think that you're so intellectual, that you've got such street smarts, that it could never, ever happen to you. Because you're already deceived if you believe that. We cannot take a cavalier approach to spiritual warfare and to the reality of the testing and the temptations and the reality of deception. Especially when I read in scripture that authentic prophets of the living God are being taken out by deception. He was an authentic prophet. Think about this. And he took him out. He was deceived. You know, we, we look at this level of deception and you come to the point where you just back up and say, what do we do? Right? What do we do? How do we protect ourselves when even righteous and holy men of God are being taken down? How do we know when it is a, a man of God? The old prophet is a prophet. How do we know if whether he's speaking is from the Lord or not? Well, let me begin to share with you 
the reality of that matter. And I want to do so in a very, very interesting way. I want to take you to the caves of Qumran. Because in the caves of Qumran, there was a fragment there that discusses this whole context in the sense of how do we know whether a man of God is a true prophet or whether just in general a prophet is truly speaking by the Lord, whether he's speaking truth or of himself. How do we make that determination? I want to show you what the fragment says. It has this lengthy discussion, very amazing, but we're going to learn, we're going to learn a lot. So we're going to go to, and this is uh, found in the fourth cave of, of Qumran. It's 4Q375, and this is what we read. But any prophet who arises to urge you to apostasy, to turn you from following your God, must be put to death. Now that's Torah. There's no really deep revelation here. That's Torah. Yet if the tribe to which he belongs comes forward and argues, he must not be executed, for he is a righteous man. He is a trustworthy prophet. Here's, we continue. Then you are to come with that tribe and your elders and judges to the place that your God shall choose in one of the territories of your tribes. You are to come before the priest who has been anointed upon whose head has been poured the anointing oil. So I want to paint the picture here. The situation is they're dealing with somebody who had risen a prophet who spoke according to the name of the Lord. He spoke the words of the Lord. But one group rose up and said, cried foul. He is not speaking the words of the Lord. And there's a big ruckus here. But then it says, but if his tribe, the members of his tribe come to his aid and say, we know this guy. We know for a fact that he's righteous. We have witnessed it. We have been with him. He is an authentic prophet. Well, then the discussion says, okay, if there's a controversy, go up to the Kohen Gadol. Or go up to the coin. Go up to a priest that has been anointed. He has the anointing oil on him. Now here's what's interesting. This is where it gets fascinating. As you continue to read, the, the fragment talks about how the priest, the first thing he does is make all these offerings. Okay? Sacrificing a bull and a ram and so forth. And it finally comes to a goat. And the goat is sacrificed for, for, the, for the whole assembly. Okay? And this is what we read. And I'll pay very, very close attention. Afterwards, he is to sprinkle some of the blood before the curtain of the veil, then draw near to the ark of the testimony. There he shall study all the commandments of the Lord, comparing all the laws that have been kept secret from you. Absolutely phenomenal. To make the distinction, to say, is he speaking according to the word of the Lord? The priest makes these sacrifices. What do he do? He retreats to the word of God. And he scours the Torah and he scours and he studies to know the things that he's speaking, whether or not they're lining up. Absolutely amazing insight. This is how we are to identify fact from fiction. And what do you know? This agrees with the writer of Hebrews. And what does he say? The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is the power of the word of God. It can literally cut a paper sideways in half. I mean, that's a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is deceitful, wicked above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? You do not want to rely on I think or your emotions of what you think or what you feel is right 
I feel that this is right. If you're catering to your emotions, let me tell you something. Emotions do not dictate truth. They do not dictate the word of God. You're going to fall into deception. I promise you. The heart is deceitful above all things. But the word of God will come and cast light. That's what the word is. Thy word is a lamp unto thy feet and a light unto thy path. This is what happens. It sheds light on darkness, right? Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. I want you to think about that statement. In other words, when a prophet goes out and says, thus says the Lord, or someone comes up to you and says, you know, I have a word for you. The Lord gave me a word of knowledge for you. Here it is, my brother. Really? Because it's got to, it's got to pass the test. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And do you know what that statement means in, in the eyes of a Jew? And according to Paul, what that means is the entirety of the Tanakh. It's all the prophets. What is Moses? We call it the Torah. We call it the law. No. What was Moses? He was a prophet. He was a prophet of the living God. The spirits of the prophet are subject to the prophets. Period. Speaking of Torah, we want to learn something about prophets, about making an identification. The Torah does a marvelous job at just coming right out and attacking the issue. Going to Deuteronomy 18, this is what we read. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. I want to be very clear on something here. It doesn't just say if somebody comes to you in the name of Baal trying to go get you to serve Nehushtan or some other false god, uh, whatever the case may be. It's not just that. That does not constitute what a false prophet is. It falls under the, under the category, absolutely. But what did he say? If they speak anything which I have not commanded him to speak. See, this goes to Deuteronomy 4. This goes to Proverbs 30, where it says, You shall not add nor take away from my word. That, you're going to fall into the false case. So now we're talking about theology. Now we're talking about doctrine. We're talking about the commandments of the living God. This is what we're dealing with. So this is not just about taking on to some other gods. And the other thing that you need to understand when the Torah was given and what they were going into and what we know for a fact from archaeological evidence, it's much more deceptive of men coming in and saying, hey, let's go follow this other God. You know, I'm an Israelite speaking to another Israelite. That's not how it went down. You know what archaeology tells us and what they have found in Israel? They have found little artifacts, little gods. They have found inscriptions on doors that said, Blessed be Jehovah in his Asherah. They bring a Canaanite goddess into the mix to join with Jehovah, the God of Israel. So apparently he needs a wife. See, that's a lot more deceptive, the context of it. Oh, because we're still worshiping Jehovah. I mean, you, you, you go, go, go to the calf. And says, this is Yehovah who led us out of Egypt. You know, our, again, our preconceived notions are killing us. So this is what it says. Now it goes on and say, to say in verse 21. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? Million dollar question. Eh, question every single one of us should be asking. How do we know? It's reasonable, right? Well, it goes on and says in verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. It's pretty straightforward, right? 
It's prophecy. If you understand anything about biblical prophecy in the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah confirms this fact more than anything. Prophecy is a wait and see game. That's what it is. I tell you things before they come that when they happen, you may believe. These are the words of Yeshua in John chapter 14. It's a wait and see game. So when someone speaks and then it happens, he's a true prophet. I mean, these things that Yeshua spoke in the gospel of Matthew and in the gospel of John, prophetic things which have happened have proved him. He is a true prophet, right? This is straightforward. So it's a wait and see game. It's very simple. Or is it? Unfortunately, it's not that simple. Unfortunately, this isn't the only text dealing with false prophets. It's much more sophisticated than that. Look at Deuteronomy 13. This is what we read. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, stop. Now we're dealing with a situation where a prophet of the living God comes on the scene. He tells you X, Y, Z is going to happen, and it happens. It actually takes place. And it goes on, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. Why, oh why, would even the Lord allow this to happen? So don't think I forgot about the old prophet and probably what your wheels are spinning. Why, oh, why did that happen? Why, oh, why did this old prophet come on the scene and do this? Well, we actually get that answer in the very next verse, in verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of the dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart or with all your soul. That's why. So when a prophet can even say something, a miraculous thing, he could pre-tell you, it comes to pass. The Lord is testing you. Well, how so? Well, because now the prophet, the things that came out of his mouth, he's alluring you away from the commandments of God. That is deception. That is scary level of deception. The Lord wants to know whether his word abides in your heart. He wants to know whether you're going to listen to man over him. And you think about Deuteronomy 8, the same thing. The Lord leads Israel out into the wilderness to hunger and thirst to test them. Why? To know whether or not they would keep the commandments of God. It all boils down to that. That's the inner core. That's the core of the true grace message of the gospel of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. We continue on in verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and do what? And keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Moving on, verse 5. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage. Literally, to what? To entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. What do prophets of God who do not speak according to the Lord, what do they do? They entice. They seduce. They play upon your emotions. Do you remember what I said in the last message? All somebody needs to do is come up to you and tell you the things that you want to hear, that your flesh wants to hear, and you will eat every last drop. You'll consume it whole. 
This is a scary thing. We cannot consume anything to the compromise of God's commandments. It cannot happen, especially when we're living in these last days. And quite literally, all hell has broken loose. Demons are everywhere. Perversion is, we are inundated with perversion. And that's not in the world, that is in the church. Let's rise. We're going to do our battle cry. Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, it is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save your very lives. And let us read together. Today we will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight and we will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. And let us pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.